0: specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: How do you raise financially fit kids? Jolene Godfrey has spent a lifetime helping families to do just this, Trained as a social worker, Jolene has spent most of her career being involved with kids, most of it focused on resiliency. Jolene has focused on this issue in a way that few people have. Jolene believes that financial fluency is a family activity, not just something to help kids with. When the values, practices, and conversations are woven into the family culture, this work can be easy and fun, preparing our kids for the future. To build and understand financial fluency, you should think about it in terms of it being developmental, building blocks that include financial, intellectual, social, and human capital, an acronym that Jolene describes as FISH. Think of it in terms of drip, 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 a process that develops over time. However, the earlier we can start, the more we can absorb the habits as a normal part of growing up. Please enjoy my conversation with Jolene Godfrey. Jolene Godfrey, I am so excited to welcome you to the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast.
1: Well, look at what you're doing. I'm excited to be here. This is fun.
2: And, and to think that we have a triple connection that I'm sure that we will talk about throughout our conversation.
1: <laughs> Can't wait. Exactly. And
2: it's, it's funny because the, the more I get known and the more I talk to people Somebody always knows somebody that has a set of triplets. And uh, what, what some people may or may not know is even in this really small community that I live in, in Commerce Township, which is outside of, of Metro Detroit, even within our subdivision, I think there's like 270 house houses in here. There's actually three sets of triplets that live in here. My word. But the Fenner, the Fenner triplets are the originals. so. <laughs>
1: That's what matters.
2: <laughs> so I, I think to start our conversation, uh, Jolene, is to kind of give us a background about um, about your work and kind of introduce our audience to who you are in case they don't know. Um, and and I, as we were talking before I hit the record button, I found you through your, your work and your book, Raising Financially Fit Kids, which we're going to talk about a lot, um, which is near and dear to me with these triplets plus one that I'm trying to raise. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you.
1: Well, I'm an odd duck. And I say that because I'm trained as a clinical social worker who spent a lot of years doing family therapy and clinical work. Um, so I'm not, I didn't come at this as a financial professional, in other words. I started, as I said, in social work, ended up becoming the in-house shrink at the Polaroid Corporation now 100 years ago, it seems like. Um, but that already was a strange turn for a social worker. But that sort of pushed my entrepreneurial bug, and we won't even go into what that all looked like. <laughs> Eventually, though, um, I ended up doing um, writing a letter to Inc. Magazine this was on the anniversary of its 10th year. And that year they came out with a cover story on the, uh, what did they call it? The, The dream team of American entrepreneurs. And I opened it really excitedly, only of course to discover it was all white dudes in there. And there were none of my female friends of any color. And um, I wrote a letter to the editor, who at the time was George Gendron, who was the founding editor. And I tell you, I go into this piece of it because that launched a real interest for me in the lives of women who had chosen to become entrepreneurs, who'd kind of stepped away from corporate America and thought, I'm just going to do this on my own. Inc. ended up supporting a series of interviews and my first book on women entrepreneurs. And when that was done, I suddenly understood that what I really cared about was what might have happened if any of those young women or those women, because they, I think the oldest at the time was 65 that I was interviewing. I was curious if anybody had talked to them about money when they were little girls, how would their lives have been different? And so by the time I finished the first book, what I really cared about was figuring out how to get that started, how to help little girls start becoming financially fluent. That is another whole long story of itself, but I will say that it took me about six years before I decided that was really important. It's still very important, but it turns out Financial fluency is important for both boys and girls. We assume too little for girls and too much for boys, so we've got problems on both sides. And it was out of that that the first "Raising Financially Fit Kids" book grew.
2: So, for, from I like to stay on that for a second because a lot of the the research and articles that I've read suggest that same number that you just referenced that that parents talk to their sons more about finance than they do their daughters.
1: Yep. The, and then the downside of that that happens is parents assume that their little boys are picking it all up and they're getting it and they're going to be you know, just fine. They don't have to do anything other than kind of bring them on board informally. What I found was that, that doesn't, that's not quite enough. And so there are a lot of guys who approach me as adult men and say, listen, I in fact, one of my favorites who became a client is this guy who was, I think, I think Chad was maybe 29 or 30. First time I met him, I was giving a talk and he approached me, total stranger, with my Raising Financially Fit Kids book in his hands. And he said, I need this. I want you to tell me and teach me this. I don't want a business school class. I want this, and what he was saying is what I get all the time, which is, look, we need to start with basics. We we can't assume people step in and suddenly they magically know how to invest or how to talk to an advisor or how to think critically about financial decisions. And and I just say to families all the time, you know, you would not leave a kid in the middle of Lenin Square in Moscow and think that they could speak Russian, you'd prepare them for that. We don't do that for kids when it comes to money. And obviously, we need
2: to. And that's that's one of the things that, that I encounter when I'm first working with a family from a wealth planning standpoint is just getting over that initial fear that they have and Either stepping into my office or picking up the phone or having a Zoom call. And that is not lost on me. And I think that over the years I have become, or at least tried to become, extremely empathetic because yeah. I try to put myself in that family's position where it took it's taking a lot of courage to be able to say, I need help and I want to work with you. And yet most people don't know where to begin. And right. I think That's still a basic struggle for, you know, most people.
1: Well, there are two parts to that. And you're right. They don't know where to begin. And partly they don't understand that this is developmental. I mean, you've gone through the book. So you understand that just like learning to walk or talk or do anything that we learn as little kids it turns out financial understanding is also de- developmental. You don't start with a textbook on investing. You begin with the financial language, values, the, the most simple components of learning to manipulate money in terms of saving, spending, consuming, sharing, all of investing, all of those pieces. But you do it as a little kid in the most basic way, rather than think you're going to start with a paragraph or you know, be fluent as, as an adult. So there is that first piece that we don't understand what goes into learning it. And the second is that the way we have grown up around money, most people feel this terrible shame. That is, if I don't understand it, there must be something wrong with me, as opposed to, wait a minute, I just missed those steps. And the shame and the embarrassment get in the way of just asking the most simple questions about how do we begin? Um, And I think those of you, and I truly count you in this very tiny group, those of you who are really uh, using, I guess, compassion with clients, are going to open some doors for them that they many people never get in their entire lives.
2: Yeah, and that's that's what I find so rewarding about what I do is helping people from the the was it the Simon Garfunkel song Bridge Over Troubled Waters?
1: Yes, yes, exactly. It's perfect. And and
2: I don't know. I still. I was I actually was talking to a, a fellow colleague earlier this morning, and I said I still. I don't know when somebody's going to pick up the phone and call me and want my help, but once I sp- start talking to them, I automatically know. I get to know the why really quick, right. and it, it's it's always a plethora of reasons, but it's usually around some kind of life transition, and I think that's the one thing that we completely underestimate is the number of life transitions that we go to or go through during our lives. Now, most people will think of the big ones like getting married or potentially getting divorced or having kids. But, you know, a lot of, of, of the people that I've worked with and centered around, which is families, what's one of the biggest things or components to a family? It's mom and dad's career. And when right. you're going through a career transition, whether it's self-induced or chosen, That's that's a major um, life transition that's really underestimated.
1: Right, right. And and to your point, there are so many of those developmental steps that we, we overlook, we take for granted, we don't give enough importance to. And yet, if you're trying to be mindful about building your own capacity and that of your children, the more you understand those steps, the easier it is to prepare for them. And particularly now when change has so accelerated that we can barely keep up with it, the idea of preparing children for the future is mind-boggling. We were saying to somebody yesterday that it used to be that families could think, well, if I can just get my kid through college, we've got success. Now the question is, how do I prepare my kid for the future? And that's the million-dollar question for grown-ups as well as kids. And so one of the things I'm looking at with families is, look, let's use those developmental milestones so we can prepare for them. And you can be much more anticipatory about preparing kids for the future rather than being reactive all the time. So it's, it's a shift of, of mind, a shift of framing in terms of how we think about developing kids for the future.
2: And I think along those lines, you know, and just the the topic of talking about money is so taboo is like I remember growing up it just wasn't talked a lot about. I mean you, you basically knew who had money and who didn't and you, you knew where you fit in that that, uh, that sphere, if you will right but today, you know I'm and maybe it's because I think Teresa, my wife, has a love-hate relationship with what I do because. On one hand, she sees the benefits of it. And then she's, then on the other hand, she's like, it's like, gosh, you have us so, you know, talking about money so often yeah, in right. so many different categories. And they're like, is this healthy? And my, my feedback to her is I would rather be having these conversations with you and the kids now than not having them at all and, and them getting into a world where, they don't understand what some of this means they don't understand that responsibility to where things are just for lack of a better term handed to them right. um right. and and having those some of these basic fundamental block building blocks that you've described in in your book um and making sure that i basically arm them with these things
1: yes and and that's how i think about it too for me financial education is economic self-defense. You are literally arming your family with the tools they need to be successful. There is another little piece that you know, but I'm going to put some words on it that may be useful to you. And that is more and more because you're right, people hate talking about money. So what I do is really try to expand the notion of what wealth means. Now that in large part comes from my point of view as a social worker, I see people in more human frames rather than just financial frames. And so if you remember in that book, I talk a lot about intellectual, social, and human capital. I have um, <laughs> I put that in a small code called FISH, F-I-S-H and i do that because kids have a very easy time remembering fish and yet i can still teach them that what we're talking about when it comes to what it means to be rich which is a word kids love then what we're talking about is not just money or financial we're talking about intellectual are you, what do you know what does your family know we're talking about social what are the relationships in your world and human what are the the more intangible human values and connections and memories. And so when I work with families, I build very gritty, grainy, granular audits and inventories of a family fish profile. And as soon as that happens, they begin to think beyond the, the whole, oh, my God, what's my cash flow issue? And suddenly it's easier to talk about wealth because wealth has a richer meaning. It's not just about the money. It's about us as a human family. And I give that to you because I have found that families do extremely well. It's not an easy shift to make because it's hard to say, Oh, we're going to talk about a bigger idea here, but once they get it and kids get it first, usually then it becomes part of family culture. And it's so built in that you hardly have to teach any longer. The kids drive it. So you may try that the next time you sit down with the family. And I'm happy to talk more with you about how I do these audits. But it's a, it's a great dimension to add to the practice.
2: Yeah, that's certainly something I want to, want to follow up with you on a sidebar. But I love that you brought that up because I… I tend to worry too about when you talk about money, it's, it's just about the, the, the wealth and the money. Um, And as you probably well know, and looking at how people spend, if you will, when you're spending on material things versus experiences, the return on those are night and day. And that's, when when I start talking with people, I have this phrase where I call it the, the checkbook never lies. It's like, you show me where you spend and I'll show you what you value. And right. if you want to change what you value, then you need to change what you spend. Brilliant.
1: Totally and, agree with you.
2: <laughs> and that's and that's something that and, and I like to get personal and share own sto- my own stories with this. And again, some sometimes Teresa's like, did you really talk about that on the podcast with, with Jolene? I'm like, yeah, because it's really important because I think the more that I can be open and talk about these topics with people, the more that they will be able to relate and understand. And the whole point of this is that this podcast and these conversations are to help other people. And, you know, having these conversations with, with Teresa and, you know, my triplets plus one, um, you know, I want to be able to, to share that. And, you know, think about the um, uh, opportunity costs that things have. And I like to explain, everybody's got a circle. And you think of that circle as your your what you're able to do, your wealth, if you will. And you slice that in so many different pies to be able to figure out how does that align to what you want to do? And what how does that allow you to sleep better at night? So if you want to... You know, save for that vacation to Disney World, then what else are we going to pull back on? And it's that that trade-off and those opportunity costs that I'm always talking to Teresa about and I'm always talking to my kids about as well.
1: Right. Which makes a whole lot of sense. And I I really like the way you frame it. You know, you remind me of something else that is parallel. Um, And that the whole issue of philanthropy is something you remind me of, because so often we if we only focus on money, what we teach kids about philanthropy is it's about giving money away. And that makes me crazy because it's not about giving money away. It is about due diligence. It's about setting priorities. It's about looking at what the issues in the world are that you want to have impact on. It is, how do I make good decisions about which ones to invest in and which not? It's the same as we do the rest of our financial planning. It's just we need to get a bigger sense of what we're talking about here. These We've reduced money to these very simple um, ideas that, that are not helpful in, in what you're talking about, which is Show me what you spend money on and I'll show you what you value. It's the values that are so critical here.
2: And I love that you touch on that because I'm sure that you're familiar with, with Ron Lieber's book, um, uh, Ron yes. Lever of the, the New York times.
1: St- yes. The opposite of, of being spoiled. I love Ron. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Ron is Ron is great. And I've, I've twisted Ron's arm a few times. I'm trying to get him on here, but it's like, oh. he's, he's overwhelmed okay. with, at the times.
1: He, uh, he truly is. He's a dear friend. And I'll will send him a text and just say you talk to Paul. So let's see if I can help with that.
2: Yeah, he's. He, but, I've actually given his book out several times. But where I was going with that is in in Ron's in Ron's book that how he lays out there's there's a jar for spending, a jar for saving, and a jar for philanthropy. And that and, and be very transparent um, with everybody. That's that last component that I have not introduced my kids to yet is the the philanthropy part. And so, that's, that's on my, my to-do list or goal list to work with them and introduce that to them. And to your point, Jolene, I think you make an excellent one there where it's not just about giving money. It's like, why, why do you want to help this organization? Where, why do you see the value in what they do? And how does that make you feel?
1: Well, and how do you move from what I, what lots of people refer to as checkbook philanthropy to more strategic philanthropy? Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I watch 10-year-olds figure that out. If you give them the models, if you do, a, say, a, a quadrant on a white piece of paper and you say, okay… Let's figure out on this. Do you do you care about things in the world or right here in home in the local town? Is it emergencies? Is it long-term? You let them work through that. And they can, a 10-year-old can figure that out. And then you take them through a bunch of those quadrants, help them figure out what's important to them. And then when they're ready to give money, you take them back and say, okay, which of these, which of these things that you said is important to you? Does this check off for you? Honestly, I think people underestimate the intellect of young children in terms of making values decisions. And sometimes they're better at it than their grown-up parents.
2: Yeah, I, I was just going to say that that I've, I've seen instances with my own kids where they actually teach me about it because they they can see and really articulate the, the value in what they either want to do or what they want to buy and can put good reason and rationale behind behind that justification.
1: Right, right. Yeah, anybody who's ever argued with a kid about what they want knows that they can run circles around you in terms of their logic in that regard.
2: <laughs> yeah, sometimes they're, they're too smart for their own good.
1: Exactly, exactly.
2: So, one of the areas I wanted to pivot to next was this financial apprenticeship framework that that you've developed. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that framework and how that works?
1: Sure. So, um, I think I said a few minutes ago, I think developmentally. That is, I'm deeply aware that there are some things, you know, they're just almost a time clock of when kids learn to you know, crawl, walk, stand, all of those things. Um, It's the same with our language. It is developmental. Um, You know, at two, you don't start reading Kant or, you know, giving long sentences. It turns out it's the the same for financial conceptualization, that you begin with very small ideas and foundations and language, and you use those early building blocks, if you will, to build on. And so, when I, again, because I think developmentally, what I began to do is think, well, what is it we need to begin sort of four to six-year-old with? What do we need to begin to be doing then with a seven to 10-year-old? And I began to put out the very specific tasks that needed to be mastered at those ages. Now, it's important to know, and this is where a lot of people get confused. Remember, I'm talking developmentally, not chronologically. So, families will say, oh, my God, that's, that's terrible. I've got a 16-year-old, and it's too late. It's all over. And, of course, what I have to say is, no, that's chronologically they're 16. But developmentally, they're young. They're, they're just beginning. So, let's go back with that 16-year-old and start at the beginning. It's why that 30-year-old came to me and said, I want this. I want to start here. That because is
2: such an excellent point because I was just going to say, I'm "Like sometimes with my, my triplets are 11 and my plus one is 9, I'm, I, I feel like sometimes I've missed the boat with them already. But you're saying, no.
1: No, no. <laughs> forget, the, forget the chronological age. Think about where they are developmentally. Developmentally, they're at the beginning. And so it doesn't mean that you're going to insult them with putting them through baby steps. I mean, obviously that would be humiliating for a child instead doesn't matter if they're 35 or 13. What we do is begin with activities and readings and conversations, all that begin with the very early stages of language, values, skills, the fish audit, all of those things that now you build on. So, as you master one set of skills, you build on it and do more. Um, it's like any kind of learning. It's just somehow we don't wrap our brain around the fact that that's how we learn financial as well.
2: So, do you think going back to um, the ages of the kids, like we, we underestimate like, how much they can actually start taking in and at an early age, if you will?
1: I work with some 13-year-olds that are so much better equipped than some 30-year-olds that it's just (laughs) crazy. Um, Now, I also work with um, kids for whom there is this intuitive understanding that if my parents want me to learn about money, they also are suggesting that it's time for me to take on responsibilities. That there are kids who are smart enough to understand, wait a minute, I've got a good thing going here. Do I really want more responsibility? And they'll resist because giving up childhood and giving up that sense of I don't have to worry about anything is not an easy task, which is why I often say, look, if you be, the earlier you begin, the more you normalize this process. But it doesn't mean if you have a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old that you can keep pushing it off because it's too hard. It gets more challenging every year because a 16- or 17- or 18-year-old kid's uh, financial needs grow as they become more independent. and Unless you're ready to subsidize those kids for the rest of their lives or for a very long time. You really want them to build capacity in those children, particularly given how much the world is coming at them. I mean, Lord, families are now having to struggle with this business of currencies. Are we talking about international currencies, cryptocurrencies? What does that mean with our kids? What do do we tell them? It is one of those family responsibilities that everybody wants to ignore, but you do so at your own peril.
2: Yeah. And I think you made a really interesting point there because I work with and talk with a lot of families and there are very few that have the financial capacity to continue to um,
1: keep kids on their payroll. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. So Now that's really hard. And yet... There are families putting themselves in debt and taking out extra mortgages. And for me, that is one of the biggest challenges that nobody is willing to talk about in the country today.
2: Yeah, there's and that's um that's a really interesting point you you bring up because that is when I start having conversations with families, that's when it gets start starting to get dicey for me. And and having to be a third-party, you know, neutral arbitrator, if you will, and bring up the point and the fact, I'm like, you're sacrificing your potential retirement, happiness, and lifestyle to be able to do this for your kids. Now, if you're telling me, honestly, it's worth it, this is what you want to do, this is why you want to have this life, then that's okay. But I I don't think many people are honest with themselves when they do say that. I think- yeah.
1: And I would push back because I would say it's not okay because they are disabling their children by not building capacity in those kids. I mean, dad has a heart attack because he's so stressed out. There's no income coming in. That kid is there, deer in the headlights, and they are not prepared to be adults. That Robbing them of that capacity building, I think, is one of the biggest mistakes and and most awful things a family can do. And I understand why they do it. Every family wants their kid to be happy. And yet that's different from making them competent. And I think that that trade-off between this sort of idealized notion of what it means to be happy versus building strengths in kids is one of the, I don't know how we got so astray on that over the last number of decades, but we do. And confusing making a kid happy with keeping them from having to have any responsibility, I think is just criminal, so.
2: I I struggle with that. And I know a lot of other families do. And I can give you a very, very basic uh, example of that is when it comes to electronic devices. If there's one topic that we, in my age group of 40-something or older 30-something parents have in common, is when we get around together, we're always talking about this, this topic of electronic devices and how influential they can become or are, how to regulate, how to manage. And it was already hard before the pandemic. But right. once the pandemic hit and, you know, we found ourselves trying to homeschool plus trying to work from home at the same time, it, it, it became really hard. And I see it more so in boys than I do the girls, because obviously I've got my own Petri dish here. But then when I'm talking with other families as well, they're telling me the same things. And yeah. that's that's a major concern. And we're we're still trying to get our arms around it.
1: So, there is a response to that. I'm going to try to give you a very quick one, but we may want to talk about this offline as well. Um, Here's the story. I'm giving a talk at the Harvard Business School. I finish as I always do. And at the end of it, I have this long line of Harvard Business School graduates who are at the reunion, and they are just dying to tell me a story because of something I've said in this talk. And I stand there listening to one story after another for easily 30 minutes. And that night, I think to myself, oh, my God, what those individuals were saying to me was what their mother or father or grandparent had nagged them about as they were kids. Because every one of them started with, my mother always used to say, or my grandfather would tell me, And I realized maybe because I was at the business school, it's like marketing 101, repeat, repeat, repeat. And in my world with kids, we think of that as nagging. But we stopped nagging kids a long time ago because God forbid we annoy them in any way. (laughs) It turns out repetition, as we all know, is the secret sauce. So I don't care if you're dealing with technology or peers and friends, or their, their clothing taste, or what it is. But I have come now to say to families, nag, nag, nag. That's your job. And I don't know when we decided we needed to be so polite to children, but I want to give it up.
2: that is, that is extremely insightful. And and I wish that we were in the same room. I'd give you a big hug right now, Jolene, because (laughs) Teresa and I have literally been talking about this, you know, quite often and trying to figure out like, cause it's, and I hear this from other parents too. It's just, they, you get worn down. Like you, you, like to your point, you repeat, 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 nag, nag, nag. And you just get to a point where you get Exhausting. You, it's exhausting, and I think people always ask me when I tell people, like, you know, our situation, like I have these triplets, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, like, what is that like?" And the the one example I've been giving lately, it's like, <laughs> it's they just come at you in in waves versus right. having one or two. Like there there is a distinction between. Man to man and zone defense when it comes to parenting, which I know you probably know all too well, especially with that smile right now on your face, yes, which our audience yes. can't see right now because we're 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 at a podcast. But you, they just they just continue. The, the biggest difference for me with having four versus having one or two is that there's more of them, and they keep coming at waves. And where if you only had one or two kids, you might be able to be more tolerable or more patient or more empathetic. Right. But with right. three or more, in our case, four, and I know other families that have you know, four or five kids as well, right. it's the same thing. You, you, we get worn down much quicker, much easier because there's so many.
1: So I'm just going to say, Paul, that you've got, I mean, I said to somebody earlier today, we are planting forests, not tomato plants. And that's how you need to think about these children, because it doesn't you don't need to come at them every single day because it is too exhausting. But if you think about drip, 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 tormenting them over years, over a very long period of time, if maybe once a month or once every two months. But there is some consistency of messaging that goes all through childhood So that that becomes internalized as, oh, that's our family culture. And those are the kids who will show up with me one day and say, my father always used to say, yes, and that's what we're aiming for. So I would say, give yourself a break. This isn't something you have to come at every single day, but you want to figure out what are the messages you do want to give, which is why I come back to my fish profile Because once that is on the refrigerator printed out for the family, it's like, this is who we are. This is what we're shooting for. And it may take us 10 years to realize this, but 10 years is a flash in the life of a family. So I just want to give you a little breather here. You cannot do it all in a short period of time. This is a very long, long game. And But it does, I will say, I'm old enough now. I've been doing this long enough. Uh, Candidly, when I first started, I was making it up every day. And for the first decade, I would think, oh, my God, I don't know if this stuff really works. I mean, I think it does. But nobody had ever tested it. Nobody had ever done it before. I was really in this world the first. And finally you know 10 12 13 14 years in i began to see those families and kids i'd worked with earlier and it's like it does work <laughs> but you really do need to take a long perspective and that's hard to do in this world where we think everything's going to happen really
2: fast and so- this is this is what so this is why I wanted you on and to have this conversation because this is what is so intriguing to me about your background of being this social worker, but yet having this incredible knowledge and expertise around financial literacy, especially, you know, you started with women and then moving into kids and it's this uncommon meshing of both those worlds, which is so needed in in today's world to, to your point where everything is like, you know, instant gratification. And, um, you know, my, my own therapist has told me like, just remember, like when things start getting off the rails, Paul, just say to yourself, I have four kids. I have four kids. (laughs) And then then, take a breath.
1: (laughs) Take a breath. Yes. Actually the the necklace I wear says, breathe on it. I wear this all the time. Just breathe. That's what we have to do. I do want to add one little tiny piece, though, again for another time. Um, In addition to families, to, to children, to women, to families and kids, I now have come to understand the importance of everything we're talking about for people I refer to as the financial novice. and I would say almost Anybody over 18 up to the age of 95, if they have not gone down their own sort of professional financial road, they are a financial novice. They are dependent on professionals. I mean, I would not pretend that I understand intellectual property the way my IP lawyer does, <laughs> nor does anybody expect me to. Right. But somehow when it comes to money, we expect people to have almost the same level of understanding as a professional. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. You really do need uh, to understand that these are adult novices and they too are just beginning because none of us got this education early on.
2: So Uh, I think where I want to go next, because I know I I only have you for a finite period of time, but I want to come back to the book, Raising Financially Fit Kids. And I know this will put you on the spot, but if there's one, two, three critical points that you would want parents to know About the book, and obviously we're going to put a link in our show notes, um, you know, for people to go and and get it, which I highly recommend. Um, What would those critical points be that you would want parents to know about?
1: Um, Think in terms of drip, drip, drip over a long period of time. In terms of instilling language, values, and skills, this is not an overnight process begin early and if you don't begin early don't don't freak out just begin at the beginning no matter how old the kid is um, and you I think you see in the book I talk about whether they're twelve or sixteen what it means to start at the beginning so, that's the second thing. I think the third thing I would say is this business of really expanding the notion of what it means to be wealthy in a family. And I mean that regardless of what your asset base is. It's not just about what kind of money you're bringing home, it is about understanding and really understanding how to leverage the intellectual life of the family, the the talents, the knowledge, the experience and education. It's understanding how to leverage the relationships, not just in a transactional way, but in a real way. And It's about understanding that that human capital, that sense of identity, is so much more valuable than anybody ever pays attention to. The great dilemma in the country today is the number of kids who are feeling anxiety. Mm-hmm. Now, they're feeling mm-hmm. yes. anxiety for a gazillion reasons, but not the least of those reasons has to do with trying to now answer the question, who am I? Who am I in the context of, I don't even know if I got to school full-time. Who am I? I don't know what kind of careers are ever going to be out there. Who am I? What kind of job am I going to have? Anxiety is at the root of many of the things families are dealing with. And that for me is part of this whole fluency piece. If you can help kids understand internally who they are, it is a step forward that is going to make both their lives and the family life that much more stable, rewarding, (coughs) um, fulfilling. So these are big issues. It's not as easy as I'm going to teach kids how to do a balance sheet or a checkbook. These are big, but they are juicy, marvelous issues and can really enrich family life.
2: So I know that usually most people that listen to the show know that my, my closing question is I ask what the best thing about being a parent is. And I I know that you don't have any kids. Um, and it's funny because when we were emailing back and forth on, on, uh, on our topics, on the on the conversation, you had, you kind of made this point. I got to look at my notes where it's like I'm not, and I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not sure if I, I would be able to be where I'm at today if I had those kids.
1: <laughs> I'm sure I wouldn't have. I'm, and partly that's because over the course of my career, I have worked with well over 400 of the world's wealthiest families. I'm, one of my clients had 250 family members over five generations. Another one had 150 over four generations. I mean, I'm dealing with really big, complex systems. Had I had to go home and deal with my own system, I probably would have torn my hair out. Uh, but I think the upside of that is that I've had a chance to see so much variability across families. And I've seen so many things work, no matter how crazy it seemed. And I've seen so many things that in patterns really don't work any longer. And we have to pay attention to that. I had the time and the ability to observe in a way that I probably would not have been able to do had I been an active parent. But I will say, weirdly, my undergraduate degree was in child development. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life, but here I am, decades later, thinking, "Yeah, that was exactly the right place <laughs> to begin." So, there you go.
2: Well, I you you I didn't have to ask the question that you answered for for us, and um, I I cannot thank you enough, Jolene, for being on on the show because I know that that your time is priority, um, and uh, I. I just want everybody to realize what a tremendous resource you are. I mean, you've written so many books, so many publications, not just Raising Financially Fit Kids, but others as well. And you know, we'll definitely link to the book and um, your website so people can t- can find out more about you. Um, but Jolene Godfrey, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. And and okay. I, I'm i really looking forward to building a, a, a long long runway relationship with you. Drip, drip, drip.
1: (laughs) Drip, drip, drip. Exactly. Thank you so much, Paul. It's fun to talk to you. More later.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.